Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 1st. It's a Wednesday, 2012. Um, another month has gone by. I want to ask you, as I do from time to time, are you creating more liberty, self-sufficiency, and independence in your life or not? If the answer is no, and if you haven't gotten at least a little bit more out of the month, if you haven't gotten just a little bit further along in your walk, I hate to tell you, but you've slid back. The world is a dynamic place. Things like self-sufficiency, uh, independence, liberty, health, wealth, all of these things are never static. They're always moving, and we're either going forward or we're sliding back. I want you to think about that today. As I talk about homesteading in a little bit of a different angle, I found that some of the uh, most popular shows that I ever do are where I go out and it's either a lot of stuff I've grown or sometimes I just find new stuff or a lot of times it's stuff I'm naturally just growing for the first time. And I go out and find about things, uh, find out about things that, you know, have just been lost or forgotten and, and bring them back and talk or talk about even things that we, we all know about in a new way, a different way of looking at things. Unusual edibles and forgotten heirlooms. So today I have eight for you, and uh, some of them you've likely heard of before. Some of them I'm sure you've heard of before. Well, maybe we'll talk about using them a little bit differently or different varieties. And uh, I have kind of a hidden agenda with today's show that I'll tell you when I actually get into the main topic. Before I do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, silverandgoldshop.com. Uh, part of what I'm doing today's show is I want to get away from the gloom and doom of the economy for a while. It just seems like something that uh, we have to face, we have to talk about. But I, it's also good to have some mental, emotional, and spiritual therapies once in a while. And, 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 you know, homesteading is a big part of that for me, gardening and cultivating things and designing properties, honestly, because I feel like I'm accomplishing something. But as I'll tell you today, just because it makes you feel better doesn't make the problems go away. Now, one way I do know to hedge against the problems of economic uh, collapse, economic you know recession, depression, what have you, is precious metals. And I think that all of us should be holding at least some silver and gold in our portfolios. So check out silverandgoldshop.com today for some really cool ways to do just that. Uh, next up today, shelfreliance.com. Notice I said shelfreliance, like a shelf onto which you put things. Not self like you, yourself, and you, right? Or me, myself, and I, right? You, yourself, and you. It's not that. It's shelf like storage. Because Shelf Reliance specializes in innovative food storage solutions that allow you to easily eat what you store and store what you eat by constantly rotating your canned goods for you. And they, they can hold a tremendous amount of food. I think a lot of people don't realize how space conscious they are. They see the space between the rows and they go, that can't be that efficient. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable how much in a small form factor of food that these things hold. I mean, they're based on the type of merchandising stuff that many vendors use to put their products in the supermarkets today. That tells you something about efficiency there. They also have the Thrive brand of long-term storage food, some of the best food that I've ever eaten, uh, especially out of the long-term storage uh, world, 
has come from the Thrive brand. And the, the variety is unbelievable. Uh, I, I would say this. The quality of most long-term storage food is good. The taste is decent. Thrive, to me, in a few instances, is a little bit better. But where they just crush the competition is variety. If you can think of it, they probably have, have it. So check out shelfreliance.com today. Again, remember, it's a shelf, not a self. Also want to remind you about tspcopper.com. Check out tspcopper.com. Really cool copper rounds. Very affordable way to uh, increase a little bit on your barter currency side or to share messages like the real truth about money, survival podcast, the work of Ron, uh, Ron Paul, uh, or some other really cool stuff that we have there for you like protecting our Second Amendment rights. Check it out today, tspcopper.com. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you know what you get. You get exclusive content available nowhere else. You get discounts to over 32 vendors. I just did a post about all the stuff you get. I'll put a link in today's show notes so you can take a look at it. I think a lot of people aren't really aware of how much you get with the Member Support Brigade. The sale, the Texas sale, you know what I'm going to do? One more day. Uh, I, I feel bad again. I missed a show this week. Uh, I didn't get to promote it on the air the way that I planned on. So if you have been considering joining the Member Support Brigade and you were, you know, you thought you missed out on the sale, uh, discount code is Texas, T-E-X-A-S. You can use that when you sign up online or if you pay by mail, you can use that on the form. Existing members, you cannot use it to renew online. If you renew by mail, you can renew by mail. We'll have to cancel your automatic renewal if you're already uh, in the system that way, but we'll be happy to do that for you. Just write it on the form and make sure you check the box that says renewal and note that it's an early renewal when you do that. Okay, everything wrapped up. Let's get into this today. So what I want, what I, what, you know, like, like about two weeks ago, maybe a week and a half ago, I, I can't remember when exactly, I did a show called Weeds That Aren't Weeds, and I did a whole bunch of stuff that was like more weedy stuff, and then I did a whole bunch of unusual stuff for the garden, and when I got done, I was like, oh crap, I left out the mouse melon, I wanted to talk about mouse melons, and I wanted to talk about salsify, and I wanted to talk about holeless pumpkins, and I, I didn't talk about any of that, I don't know, well, fool, you went an hour and a half, you talked about a billion things, no wonder you left some things out, and I thought, well, you know, we'll get back around to it. But as I sat today, I started thinking about how much gloom and doom we've had to cover lately. And I say had to because we have to face this stuff. Um, to quote uh, Stephen Covey again from yesterday, uh, while we are free to choose our actions, we are not free to choose the consequences of our actions. And there's been a lot of actions taken by people that aren't actually us, but they are the collective us. And we have a lot of consequences on the way. And... With those consequences on the way, it's it's my duty, as I see it, to continuously remind you about them so that you don't go back to sleep. Because one of the biggest problems that prepper mentality has is that a lot of times if you're not doing things that improve your life today, even if nothing goes wrong, you tend to go back to sleep. And then the person that should be the most prepared is the least prepared when it actually you know comes around and, and the preparedness is needed. Kind of like the mechanic whose car is 6,000 miles past its, its recommended oil change. He does a thousand oil changes a day, but you know, God, I just don't want to do my own, that type of thing. So I was thinking last night, what can I do that's positive tomorrow? And you know, my idea about doing the show with some more stuff and it came up. And then a listener sent me a link uh, to an article. And that article has a title, New Minnesota Law Requires Gardens and Prisons. It's a short article, so let me read it to you. A number of new laws go into effect in Minnesota on August 1st, including one that requires gardens and prisons. 
Prisons that are high security or that don't have the space won't be included, but three out of ten prisons in Minnesota already have gardens, and it's likely that three more will soon be added. The garden at the Red Wing Correctional Facility is in its second year and will produce 20,000 servings of fruits and vegetables for local food shelter this summer. It just started off as something, this is a quote from a prisoner, it just started off as something to pass the time while I'm incarcerated. It grew into a passion for so much more, said Corey Schilling, who was sentenced to 72 months for a drunk driving accident that led to a fatality. Quote, it's kind of my daily dose that I used to find in the bottle, but never could, Schilling added. Who would have ever thought I would find it in a garden? And when I read that, I said, you know what, this is the time for another gardening episode. And it's bigger than just that, that gardens can heal you know, a prisoner. I think gardens and homesteading and all of the stuff that goes with it, producing you know, your own storable food, learning the can, homesteading skills, community building, all of this is the, the only solution that we have to the consequences that we're going to face. And let me tell you why before I get into all these cool crops today. People defend what they value. And if you want me to sum up what's really wrong in America today, it's not selfishness in the way it's generally thought of. Selfishness is usually thought of as, I have all this stuff, and I want to keep it. And actually, that can be good if it doesn't go too far. So, Because if you have something and you want to keep it, you value it, and you'll defend what you value. The selfishness we have in America today that's been twisted round and has caused the majority of problems that we have either caused for ourselves or allowed government and politicians to cause is the selfishness of what can I get next? Who has more than me? Who should pay more taxes, etc. ad nauseum? The American dream has gone from being build it and maintain it and pass it on to I always need something else so that I'll be happy. And our collective souls have become empty. It's amazing what happens, the transformation in people, when you teach them to build something, to create something, and their ability to build and create it is connected to the neighborhood they live in, to the home that they live in, to the land that they care for. It's amazing what happens When you take a weed whacker and a lawnmower out of the hands of a suburbanite and put a garden trowel and a sicket into it instead and start having them do something that matters. Because let me tell you something, folks. Your, your lawn is freaking meaningless. It has no soul. It has no purpose. It accomplishes nothing. It does nothing. It requires you to maintain it, and it does nothing to maintain you. And the only thing that it might do for you, if you're unfortunate enough to live with an HOA, is keep the blue-haired old lady that goes around looking at everybody's crap and bitching because she has nothing better to do off your back. It's the only function most, most lawns provide. Now, we might need some for some sporting activities and throwing footballs and stuff like that, but the general backyard today in suburbia ain't big enough to do that anyway. So there's a place for a lawn. It's probably not in your front yard, your little postage stamp front yard. 
And we have to fight battles so that we can plant gardens there today. But I believe, I really believe this, that if we put a garden in 50% of backyards in America today, we'll change America. I know that sounds ridiculous. But let me read you one more time the quote from the inmate. It's kind of my daily dose of what I used to find in a bottle, but I never could, Schilling added. Who would have ever thought I would find it in a garden? That's interesting, isn't it? Forget about it being this man who had a, you know, the, the poor judgment to drink and drive and cost another man their life. Or another family, I mean, I have no idea who, you know, if it was a woman, a child, a, a man, but another human being in their life. And think of how many people may be able to make that same statement someday. Who would have ever thought I would have found it in a garden? Feeding your family makes you matter. Feeding your family makes you matter. Getting the newest tablet or thin book does not make you matter. It's cool. I have nothing against it, but it doesn't mean jack diddly shit. It really doesn't. But feeding your family matters. Feeding the old lady down the street from you matters. These things matter. That's why I'm talking about gardening today. I just wanted to set the stage for you. Now let's have some fun with it. The first thing on my list we recently talked about with a gentleman who has a farm in Tennessee. But we talked about it mainly for producing syrup, and a sweetener. Uh, it's sorghum. And I am becoming more and more enamored with and fascinated with sorghum as I grow it alongside even older varieties of corn that we're going to talk about today, too. And it found it to be largely completely pest and disease resistant. Um, it just it just grows. And, and when you start looking back at where it actually comes from, it makes sense. Because, of course, it comes from Africa. And if we think about some of the other things that come from Africa, like something that's not on my list today, okra. I mean, what problems do you have growing okra? It doesn't care if it gets hot. Like, it gets hot. It's like, yeah, okay. And then it goes up to like 110 degrees, and okra's like, that's all you got? And then it doesn't rain for like a week, and okra's like, that's fine. I got plenty stored up in my stocks and my pods and whatever. And, you know, it, it just it just champions on. And many things that we uh, find that come from the African continent are, are very much like that, and sorghum's no exception. Now, as I said, when we had... Um, What was, what was that gentleman's name? He was a really cool guy. Tim Amazon. He talked a little bit about, you know, some multi-purpose sorghum, like rocks orange that you can use, uh, after you squeeze the canes, you can use it for silage and you can use, uh, the, the grains to grind a flour. But we really didn't talk about sorghum for making flour, sorghum for grain. And as I've been growing some Mennonite sorghum this year, and it's, it's just doing beautifully. Um, everything's doing pretty good this year, except the squash bugs are killing me on some of the squash plants. Um, but it's just, I mean, there's not a blemish on it. The deer aren't eating it, which is kind of surprising. They're eating the heck out of some of the corn. I don't know if it's just where it was planted and it got up, because it seems like they've left the corn alone once it gets matured. So when it's young, they, they hammer it right to the ground. But as I've been growing this, and I'm starting to realize... Uh, with just, you know, not that many canes, probably nine there, four there, nine there, 25 canes, that I'm going to get a fairly large uh, grain crop out of just, you know, let's say 25 uh, Mennonite sorghum canes. I started to realize that this stuff doesn't ask for a lot and produces a pretty good yield. 
And that grain, of course, this time around is really going to be a big seed crop for our next homestead. Uh, but, you know, if you planted, you know, a couple, couple decent-sized rows of this, you could get a really good yield. And as you guys know, I'm very paleo in my diet, but I like to eat a little bit of bread here and there, a little bit of grain here and there, and I like to eat things that are gluten-free. I like seeds and nuts and, and gluten-free grains, and I also feel this way. If you have to grow it yourself, you're not going to grow enough to overindulge. Right, so I'm trying to say like I'm going to limit my my flowers and things like that to things I can actually grow. At least I know the quality's there, and I'm, it's going to be self-limiting because you can only produce so much. But with this uh, sorghum, you can produce a lot. So I started researching sorghum more, and in Africa, it's primarily grown as a grain. It's it, the, the 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 sweetened uh, sugar syrup is extracted from certain varieties. Uh, a really popular one is uh, black amber. Uh, but it's 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 really grown heavily as a grain, and I started finding some other varieties, and two that I think are just amazing uh, from what I've seen so far in researching them. One is Tunisian sorghum, which kind of has a bluish uh, tint to it, and it's uh, it's available from Baker Creek and some other places. Uh, it was originally found, uh, they say, at, in a market in Tunisia, and uh, it has compact seed heads. That, uh, that allow it to be very, very productive. Uh, but it, it just seems like a really good variety. The one that I'm actually more excited about, and I don't have enough time now left in the year to get it in the ground and expect to get any production out of it, so it'll, it'll have to be a next year thing. It's called White African Sorghum. And here's a description out of Baker Creek's catalog. Introduced to the United States in 1857 by Leonard Ray from Natal, South Africa, under the name Anamia. It was later named White Mammoth and then White African. This variety produces 10-foot-tall stalks that make great sweet syrup and is perfect for hot waffles. The white seeds can be used to grind for flour. So this is a very, very productive sorghum. And as I've done a little more research on it, I found it's one of the main... Uh, grain varieties of sorghum grown by peasant farmers in Africa today, obviously under very harsh conditions. And 10 feet tall, that makes a heck of a bean pole, doesn't it? Uh, my view with sorghum is that next to every sorghum stalk, when it gets up to about 2 feet, you should throw a couple pole beans in there. Why not? You get nitrogen for your soil, you get another crop. But these are two that I think make a lot of sense uh, as grain producers. And then I've also learned that you can pop sorghum. And this is this is kind of cool to me. I like to pop stuff. I really do. I like to pop amaranth. I like to pop corn. Uh, I like to parch corn. We'll talk about that. And I like to make corn nuts. We'll talk about that in a bit, too. Um, but, but popping sorghum seemed like kind of a cool idea. So I got my little uh, pack of Mennonite sorghum. And I heated some oil up. You know, nice, slow, warmed-up heat, just the way I would do popcorn. And I put it in there, and it kind of cracked a little bit, turned black, and burnt. It didn't pop. And then I learned there's just like popcorn and sorghum, there are certain varieties that uh, are much more suited to popping uh, than other sorghums. And there's one called India Red Popping. So as you might imagine, uh, it is uh, a variety that is specifically... Uh, you know, grown for popping. And uh, here's a description out of uh, Baker Creek as well on this one. The red to black seeded variety originated in India, which is where the foundation seed was collected by Texas organic grower Ken 
Hargesheimer, I don't know how to say his name, who shared them with us. The stalks reach seven to nine feet tall and look gorgeous standing in the field. They seem to resist lodging and send out more tillers or side shoots than most. These often yield grain as well, and it's pretty popped like popcorn. So this is something I'm going to grow next year. Um, I wanted to read a comment by a customer, a customer review. He says, I live in southern West Virginia and have numerous seed heads still not mature enough to harvest with frost forecasted for this weekend. This is one that needs to be started early and transplanted if you have less than 130 days of frost-free weather. I can't attest for the popping ability of the seeds. Mine aren't dry enough yet. The stalks are sweet and make a good treat for the kids like a piece of cut sugar cane. My two-year-old loved it and begged me to cut and peel him a stalk every week. Since stalks are 8 to 10 feet tall, it can be cut down, cut at the nodes, bagged and refrigerated for about a week. Peel it before giving it to your kids to get rid of the grassy taste. Make sure the kids know to chew the pulp, sucking the sweet juice out and the spitting out, out then spitting out the fibery pulp. All right, so here you go. There's a couple things in this one. Number one, I think for a lot of people growing sorghum, if you're going to grow it next year, you're, if you're in a northern climate, you're going to have to really think about your days and get it out as early as possible or start it you know, just like you would any other plant. And if you're using something like soil cubes, that was, that's what I would recommend to avoid root shock. And if you give it just maybe two weeks, that's 14 days of lengthening your growing season. And if you're using like soil cubes, soil blocks, you know, setting up a hundred plants would be really easy to do. So it'd be a good thing to do in the early part of the year. Those of us in the South, 130 days, we, we, we laugh at that, honestly. I mean, even in a, a year with a frost in April and a frost in October, we're still looking at, you know, 180 days of growing. So it's not a big deal for us. But those of you in northern climates, that's, that's one thing to look at. The other thing I wanted to kind of mention is I hear a lot of people talk, I'm going to get sorghum and I'm going to make sorghum syrup. Now, when we had Tim on, he kind of explained the process. But two key things that I would point out with it are, number one, the press. Sorghum presses are specialized pieces of equipment. It's not like... You can go to you know some antique shop, find an old uh, washing machine with the rollers they used to roll the clothes out, start shugging, sho shoving sorghum through there. You need a lot of pressure to squeeze sorghum and a specialized piece of equipment. And that means today either spending a lot of money for a commercial-grade piece of equipment used by commercial growers, or it means finding an antique and being able to rehab it, and they're quite pricey as well. I don't want to dissuade anybody from doing this. I just want to put a little bit of a reality check. But it doesn't mean we can't enjoy all the, the great mineral content and uh, the vitamins and, and the flavor of sorghum cane. We can, again, just as this gentleman doing his review mentioned, peel it and chew it just like you would a piece of sugar cane. So I thought that would be good to point out. I also want to point out that uh, many sorghum varieties are suitable for silage and can be fed to your animals as well. So uh, one more thing on the syrup. It does take a lot of energy and a lot of sorghum to make a gallon of syrup. It takes about 10 gallons of uh, squeezing to render about one gallon of syrup and it takes a lot of energy inputs as well it's kind of a lost art i would encourage anybody that really wants to do it to get into it because it's becoming a lost craft but you know the home gardener and, and whatnot that's going to grow 25 50 canes of sorghum uh it's probably not in the cards if you can find a local place that would squeeze it for you that maybe would be one way you could do it or maybe you could find a, a local person that's still practicing that craft and say if I bring you my cane you know and contribute it to what you're doing and, and they might be interested in that uh, but it's not going to work for most people now 
the one way it could work is getting together 20 or 30 people and buying a press together and putting together, you know, a kind of a community thing. And that would be awesome. But I think that we don't want to overlook the potential for growing it as a grain, for making gluten-free flours, and for doing things like popping it. So sorghum, there you go. Let's go to the next one today. The next one is the mouse melon, which is actually... Uh, from what I gather, a uh, like a cucumber, but it's not a cucumber species. It's uh, Methloria scaba is the Latin name for it, so I'm going to call it mouse melon. Some people also call it cucamelon. And it kind of tastes like, I don't know, like a cucumber with some lemoniness to it, and they're just crispy as all get out. They're called mouse melon because they look like a little watermelon. If you can think of a large, um, you know, striped watermelon like you'll see in the stores right now all over the place with the kind of mottling on it, and it's dark green and light green, it looks just like that, except it's about an inch long and a half inch around. It looks like a little tiny watermelon that, I don't know, you'd let your, 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 your little girl might put it on a plate in a dollhouse for Barbie and it'd be a Barbie's watermelon. Right? That's how small these things are. They grow beautifully. Uh, I'm growing them this year, and uh, I'm just starting to get some fruit set because I got them in the – they're actually in a container. I got them in a bit late because I just found these things. But they're starting to set fruit now. Uh, I've had them before, but I've, I've never actually been the person that's grown them before. Somebody uh, – a friend of mine kind of turned me on to these things, and they're awesome. They're good raw – they're crunchy. I mean, they're like crunchy, like chips crunchy. Like there's just that crunch to them. Again, in a kind of a cucumberish, lemony flavor. You slice them in half or leave them whole and put them in stir fries. They're great that way. And you can pickle them. Now, I've never had them pickled, but that sounds pretty daggone awesome. And maybe I'll do up a jar of lacto-fermented mouse melon this year. The big thing I'm hoping to get is a big seed crop out of them because they're tiny. They only have a few seeds, and the seeds are little, man. These things are like, if you've ever seen seed from like ground cherry, they're like that kind of little. Uh, but they're a cool little plant, and... Um, you know, they kind of look like a cucumber. The cucumber beetles haven't gone near them. The squash bugs haven't gone near them. And, and it seems like a lot of these kind of exotic lost plants are a lot more, I don't know, pest resistant than a lot of the modern varieties. Uh, I'll read you one of the reviews. This eyeball-sized cucumber is one of the most fascinating things I've ever grown, and believe me, I've grown it all. All the children in the neighborhood take turns picking and eating the cucumelon straight off the vine. There's also, there is plenty for the whole neighborhood. One of the annoying things about a regular cucumber is peeling and seeding it. No need with the cucumelon. Just cut it in half, put it in a salad, and voila, instant food. Super prolific, animal resistant. Believe me, there are no squirrels stealing these grape-sized cukes, and they're very, very tasty. A must-grow for every gardener. And uh, so that was one I wanted to turn you on today. And when you look at these things, you're like, I'm going to grow this. This is cool. And because they're such a small plant, and the leaves are small too. They looked, they look, The leaves look like a cucumber. If you saw it, you'd go, that's like miniature cucumber. Because they're about, I'd say the leaves are about 10% the size of a standard cucumber. And they trellis really nice. I've got them in a five-gallon bucket and a little uh, hemp rope uh, uh, tre trellis that's, that's tied up on the back deck. And they're growing up there and spreading out and, again, starting to set fruit. So when I get a harvest, I'll post some pictures of these. But I'll post a link to seed sources where you can see pictures of all of the stuff that we're talking about today. So 
If you've never grown mouse melon, maybe this year's the year. I would say that uh, those of you in the South, you can probably still get some to produce for you this year. Mine have been in their little bucket now for about four weeks, and they're just starting to set little fruits and little flowers. So I'm saying probably two more weeks, three more weeks, I'll be picking them. Uh, so that would probably mean that if you had three months, you could get a crop maybe this year. So um, if you're in the north, unless you have a greenhouse or an attached greenhouse or something, I wouldn't even bother this year. But maybe you put it into the plans for next year. Next, I want to talk about corn. And I know you're like, corn, Jack. Everybody grows corn. What do you mean? Something unusual, forgotten, overlooked, underrated. Corn. It's, it's summer, man. Corn's everywhere. I'm not talking about that kind of corn. I'm talking about corns that are parching corns and flower corns and flint corns. Um, I actually have gotten to the point where I feel that it's not worth my time to grow sweet corn. It's very resource intensive. It requires a lot of irrigation. It requires an awful lot of fertility. It's very, uh, you got to really stay on it as far as getting into the ground at the right time. Uh, to keep the corn borers down, and if you get it in the ground a little bit late, then it's things like spraying a little bit of oil on the tassels and all, and you can do it. But it seems like a lot of work for something that I can buy from local growers very, very inexpensively. And I want to support my local growers. So it's a place where I've decided that it just doesn't make sense for me to spend my money. But when I started looking at all of the old varieties of corn, I was like, there's got to be something here. And Marjorie Wildcraft sent me some old Indian blue and Indian red corns. And I've been growing those this year. And they did get hammered a bit by the corn earworms. But as they began to harden and dry, and they're not dry enough yet for me to harvest. I pulled one uh, the other day and it wasn't quite ready. Um, but as they've done that, like the earworms are like, yeah, we don't really like this anymore. It's too hard. So they, they've kind of gone away. It's, it, I've not had to really do much, you know, put much effort into uh, to making it grow other than keeping the deer away from it. And one of the first things that I wanted to do is actually find out, as I'm, you know, reading all these catalogs, Baker Creek Seed Savers Exchange, you know, all these different uh, heirloom sources, Victory, what the hell is the difference between flower, flint, dent corn, right? So flower corn is, if it's a flower variety, it's it's designed, it's grown to be dried and milled into a flower, not a meal. And uh, if you if you have a good flower variety, when you mill it, it breaks down really easily into a flower. And these are the things that you want to make like corn corn breads and 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 corn pancakes with uh, flower corn. And I know you're thinking well cornbread, but you're more of a meal there. This is a true corn flour. A flint corn is a variety of corn that can't be milled down into flour-sized particles. Flint corns are grown for making your thicker, coarser corn meals and polentas and things like that. A dent corn is kind of in between. It's like a combination of flour and flint. Uh, dent corns generally have a blander flavor than the other two varieties, but they yield more. And then there's parching corn. And parching corn is a type of flour corn. It's a type that's grown and dried, and the kernels can then be parched or cooked over a dry heat and eaten like a snack. Evidently, um, some people think this is what corn nuts are, but this really is not what corn nuts are. And not all flour corn is really good when it's parched. Um, there are some varieties that are labeled for parching, and generally speaking, parching corns are better when you're using the reds, the, the colorfuls, instead of the yellows and the whites, 
but the more colorful Indian type corns uh, are good for parching. I want to tell you how you make corn nuts now as well. Stephen Harris was on and said you take the corn and you stick it in a hot oil and it makes a corn nut. It doesn't work that way. It really doesn't. Um, I don't know if he simplified it when he mentioned that on the air or what. But to make corn nuts, you want to take uh, a good, basically kind of your hardened flour corn, a field corn, and you want to soak it in water for about three days. It will double to almost two and a half times its size during that period. And then you want to drain it and dry it really, really good. You get your oil up to about 350 degrees. And you put very small amounts in the oil at a time. I'm talking like a couple tablespoons. If you take a big pile of wet corn, because even though you've drained it and dried it as best you can, it's full of water now. That's why we've done this. And that much water gets released in a hot oil. You get oil explosion and splattering and fires and pain and misery. So it's, you know, a few tablespoons at a time. When it floats, it's pretty much done. Take it out and drain it and add a little more. And you keep doing that to get through a whole batch. The good news is even though you're doing it a little at a time, it doesn't take very long for your corn nuts to be done. And they taste so much better than what you get in the store. And they're also pretty good when you make them out of your reds and your blues and your other different Indian corns as well. And then you season them to taste. So we can do that both with parching and corn nuts. Now, parching's a little different. I've heard people talk about doing it with the dry pan. But I've seen most people use a little bit of oil. I'm talking just enough to coat the bottom of the pan. And it's a lower heat than you would do popcorn with. And you keep stirring it and moving it around until it puffs up and it cracks. A few kernels may pop, but these are not, it's not a corn that's made for popping. So it's not going to, if you did it like popcorn, it's not going to pop well anyway. A few of them will pop. If you get too many really popping, you've got the heat too high. And then that's a great trail food. And they're, so the corn nuts and the parched corn are different, but they're, but they're, uh, they're both very, very utilitarian. Native Americans, uh, I don't know of any stories of them doing corn nuts. I think it's a modern invention, but Native Americans were very big on parched corns. Uh, so to me, it's something we need to take a look at. I'll put some links to some different corn varieties for you today, flints, flowers, uh, stuff that's really good for parching. I'll have all kinds of links for you today in the show notes. But to me, this is, this is kind of the bigger thing. When I'm growing stuff, I want to grow stuff that I can't just go down to the farmer's market or a CSA and get my hands on. And it's hard to find these varieties of corn. When you do, you find them right around Thanksgiving and, and, and uh, Halloween, and you never know what they are. They're just labeled as ornamental corn, and you really don't know what you're getting. So to me, this is a place that homesteaders can maybe put up some grain that's long-term storable, get some unique utility out of it. And these varieties of corn generally are far more disease-resistant and far more drought-tolerant and leave far less nutrient um, than, than typical corns. And I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention something called seoente, spelled with a T. I think that's how you pronounce it. Seoente is the original corn before there was corn. It grows like a grass, and it gets a seed head that kind of looks like wheat, and uh, but it's it's kind of something you know it looks like corn, like small hard corn. And I tried to grow some this year, and I put it in with some Indian corn when the Indian corn was already too far along, and I don't think it got enough sun. One piece of it grew in my little garden. I was so proud. It didn't grow as tall as I expected, but I had these two seed heads. One was nice and hard, and I should have picked it, and the other one was still kind of in a milk stage. 
and the freaking raccoon ate the heads off it. So at least raccoons like it. And the reason I mention this is farmers in Central America and Mexico today still will plant some of the ceoente or plant their corn near wild stands of ceoente, and their, their belief is that it makes their corn stronger. I say it can't hurt. Now, people always worry about cross-pollination with, with corn. Uh, apparently, this has been done for thousands of years, and I feel those, those guys know what they're doing. And uh, you know, I'm more worried about getting some cross-pollination from GMO corn pollen in the air than I am about some Sehuente cross-pollination. So I thought I'd throw that in as a bonus for you guys uh, again today. And again, I think you pronounce it Sehuente. Maybe it's more accurate, I think, Teosinte. Teosinte. And you can get it from Native American Seed Exchange. It's a little bitty packet, about 25 seeds. It's good to uh, to soak them. This needs a long growing season, uh, so I probably planted it too late anyway. Definitely too late for me to try it again this year. And unfortunately, the raccoon ate my little stock of seeds. I have to say that I was actually impressed at how much seed was on one head. It was uh, it was it was pretty impressive, and I was like, I didn't even realize what it was uh, because of where it showed up. I must have dropped one, and it, it took off on its own in a little flower garden. Uh, and I expected much less seed per plant, so. Um, who knows? Maybe this has some use uh, for feed or for cornmeal or for something. I, I don't know. It doesn't really look like corn, but yet it looks like corn. It, it's uh, shaped a little bit differently, more diamond-like. It's really hard and smaller than typical corn. I was going to try eating some just to see what it was like, but the, uh, the coon beat me to the punch. But uh, if you catch my drift... We had a little rendition of Another One Bites the Dust uh, from Queen last night at the homestead. The next one really isn't unknown, but I don't see many people growing it. And I think it's a shame because it's so easy to grow and it's so prolific. And I have found that early in the season it can be hammered by insects. But once you get it established, even if, I don't know if they're not eating it once it's established or that once it's established it just grows so fast that they can't keep up with it is tomatillo, uh, which are the things that you see in grocery stores, and if you've never eaten them or whatever, you wonder what they are. They look like a green tomato with a papery husk around them. And I, I first discovered growing them when I tossed a couple uh, ones that had seen their better days into a garden one year, and then the next year they came up. Now, this was when I was really dealing with tomato blight down in Texas. A couple box stores uh, got in huge shipments of tomatoes with blight, and the whole damn North Texas area just was inundated with it. Uh, even when people were growing their own from seed and all, there was just so much of it into the soil and some mild winters, and it hung on. And uh, it also, you know, so I'm like, well, let's, these tomatillos started to come up, and I figured out what they were and let them grow. And they consumed the entire trellis uh, of the one garden bed. And then they climbed through the trellis and started to basically consume the next garden bed. I had to go in every couple days and hack them back with a freaking machete. And I mean literally had to hack them with a machete just so I could get in between the garden beds and so they didn't overtake the next bed. And then they started to produce. And I had these green tomatillos coming out of my ears. They were everywhere. And I started making salsa with them. And oh my God, is it awesome. And what I found is a lot of times you buy these bigger tomatillos in the grocery store, they're really kind of tart. And they're fine for salsa, but they're not something you would cut a slice off of and eat. The stuff that I've been growing in my garden is pretty daggone good straight from the, uh, straight from the plant. Uh, I'll pick them up and pop them out and eat them. Uh, I'll slice them up and throw them, a couple pieces of them into a salad. But they really do excel for salsa. 
So if you've been dealing with problems with tomatoes, with blight or tomato, tomato worms or whatever, and you'd like something to kind of fill that niche and you're not having the success you want, look for tomatillo. And my only thing that really bugs me uh, about tomatoes and tomatillos is I grow them all summer long when I can't keep cilantro from bolting. So I end up having to buy my cilantro when I need it the most. I can grow it all winter, and I have no fresh tomatoes and tomatillos, and I can't keep it from from uh, from bolting. Now, there's a relative of cilantro. I haven't figured out what it is yet. Uh, I saw it in uh, like one of the bonnies, the the the, uh, the plants you know that you see everywhere. You can buy them at Home Depot and Lowe's and Walmart and all that. Uh, it was called culantro, which I don't think is the right name for it. But I should have bought it when it was there. I was like, I didn't feel like buying anything that day. We just were walking by the garden center, and I took a piece, and I ate it, and it tasted just like cilantro. Uh, and it looked a lot darker green and a little bit heavier, and it supposedly does better um, in, uh, in, the, in the heat of summer. So I'm going to look into growing that next year. So maybe I'll have a substitute for cilantro that way. And I'd encourage you to get a little bit creative. There's a lot of purple tomatillo varieties out there, and they tend to be even a little bit sweeter. So the greens are more of your traditional for your salsas and things like that, and your purples will make a good salsa, uh, but they will also uh, make a really good you know, kind of fresh-eating vegetable. Both of them, here's, a, here's kind of a tip that you might not hear elsewhere, are great grilled. Uh, you get a skewer, cut them in half, get a good high temperature, And uh, put them on the grill and grill them till they blacken just a little bit. If you brush them with a little honey right when they start to blacken, they'll even get a little tiny bit crispy and caramelized on the outside. And season them up with some fresh herbs, and they're awesome as a side vegetable. Uh, so there you go, tomatillo. Next one, New Zealand spinach. This is one I've talked about before, but I find it so highly underutilized. It is so hardy. It comes back, at least for me in the South, it comes back on its own. Once I get it established... Uh, next year, I don't know where, but it's going to come back somewhere. And uh, I don't really love New Zealand spinach. It's a, like a big bowl of it. It's another one of these greens that you, you taste it by itself, and you're like, it's a little coarse and a, a little bit scratchy and a little bit bland. And I, I don't know. It's okay. I could eat it if I have to, but I'm not really excited about it. Then you mix it into a salad and you dress it nicely and you add some other vegetables and maybe a little bit of toasted sunflower or pumpkin seeds or something like that. A little bit of dressing, a little bit of cheese. And you're like, this is really awesome. And it, does, it asks for nothing from you. It will die when the frost comes. And then it will come back next year most likely. And if it doesn't come back, you just pick a whole bunch of seeds when it goes to seed. It's big seeds. Uh, they're easy to collect. And uh, it, it'll produce seed just about anywhere in the United States for you as long as you plant it right after the first frost and give it enough time. In the south, it'll grow. I mean, you can get 180 days of this stuff growing. And it's, uh, it's really an awesome, easy-to-grow plant. And I think it's very, very underutilized in America today. And it was very heavily grown during colonial times. It's uh, originally from Australia. Or actually, New Zealand, uh, but the Australian New Zealand area, and it was cultivated there very heavily by early settlers because it was a native plant. It just kind of did everything on its own. So you can get kind of the gist that it's not going to be something that you can't grow in the north. New Zealand's climate is not really like when we think of like you know Australia's subtropics, 
uh, tropic climates. Uh, New Zealand is much more of a temperate climate. Uh, some parts of New Zealand get extremely cool, uh, extremely cold, snow in the, in the mountains and what have you. So this is something you can grow anywhere. I've also found rabbits like it. Goats like it. I've never tried to see if a cow would like it, but I bet they would. And it's so prolific that a large patch of it could be good supplemental feed to your goats and rabbits. I wouldn't try to make them subsist on it, but they certainly do appreciate it. And it'd be one of those things you could add to kind of your herbivore mixes of things that you're supplementing your feed with. So wanted to throw that one in today. Okay, next one here. What if I told you you could grow oysters in your backyard no matter where you lived? You'd probably think that's crazy, and I would be because you can't. But what you can do is grow something called salsify. Now, this is another one of those plants that used to be grown a lot, and uh, today, it, you know, not so much. It's, uh, you know, it was cultivated everywhere. It's a root crop. looks kind of like a carrot or a parsnip, and there's different varieties. The most commonly known variety is Mammoth Island, and it's kind of whitish-looking. Uh, the, the roots are in of themselves, and it has, again, a uh, an oyster-like flavor to it. It doesn't taste just like an oyster, but it has an oyster-like flavor. And it's something I've always thought about never done is, well, what if you breaded it and deep-fried it like an oyster? What would that be like? And it'd probably be pretty good. Uh, a variety that I'm going to start working with, though, is called Scorzona. Uh, it's a or black salsify, and it has a black skin and a mild white flesh, and it provides reliable wintergreen. So this is something we can grow in the cool weather. Flowers in its second year, and the flowers are edible. So you get greens, you get the root, and you get uh, the flowers, three different edibles out of one plant, and something with an oyster-like flavor. They're good in like soups and chowders and things like that. Another thing I've thought about doing with salsify It's kind of doing like a creamy corn chowder with it because it would kind of be like an oyster chowder. Or maybe even doing it with some oysters or some shrimp added and just going with the flavor. But again, this is something that was very, very heavily grown in Europe, especially Germany. Uh, a staple right there with carrots and potatoes and parsnips and turnips and things like that. that just kind of disappeared and just, just kind of went away. And it's something we as heirloom growers can kind of resurrect and have something. I mean, you're just not going to go down to Kroger and go to the produce manager and go, hey, got any black salt supply today? And go, oh, yeah, we got tons of it. It's over there on sale. It's something that you're going to have to produce for yourself. And to me, that makes it worth producing for yourself. And, and I think they're actually two different total varieties, not just like uh, – Like, let's say, two different kinds of tomatoes, but two different crops. The black and the white salsifies are different crops. Mammoth Island being the best known of the uh, the whites, and then the, the Scorzona. Um, they're also members of the sunflower family, so they do have a pretty flower in that second year when they flower and produce their seeds and what have you. But the seeds don't look anything like a, uh, a sunflower seed. They kind of look like a straight... Um, a straight version of a calendula seed is the best way that I can describe them. They're fairly large. Uh, so you get edible flower, edible green, edible root, something that tastes like oysters, and something you can't get anywhere else. So there you go. Uh, Scorzona or uh, black salsify, also white salsify is another uh, option for you there. Next one I want to talk about is Hollis Pumpkins. And I was really kind of turned on to these guys, uh, these guys by Jeff Lawton when he was on and started talking about these Austrian uh, Hollis Pumpkins that they're growing down in uh, in Australia at the Permaculture Research Institute. By the way, Jeff, if you're listening, where's my seeds, man? You guys are supposed to send me some seeds all the way from Australia. I want them. Let me know what to do if I need to do something. Anyway, so I went out and found uh, Styrian 
Hollis pumpkin seeds. I was looking all over for these things, and I kept finding Japanese varieties. And I'm like, no, I want to grow what Jeff Lawton's growing. And he hadn't sent me my seeds yet, so I'm going to get these Styrian ones. Uh, and the reason I got Styrian ones is so I read about it. Styria is a region in Austria, so I figured it must be the ones. So I ordered them. I got a package of them. And the first thing I did was eat one to see what it tastes like. It tasted really, really good. Then I planted them. And only one of the freaking things germinated. I don't know if I got a bad seed lot. I don't know if they were mishandled. I don't know if it was too hot. And I should have planted them earlier. But the one that grew went freaking crazy. It didn't get really, really long runners the way some of the other pumpkins I'm growing this year and other squashes and gourds I'm growing this year did. But it, it fanned out nicely, four or five feet. This is the cool part. There isn't a single yellow leaf on it from the squash bugs. Even my butternut squashes, they've eventually taken out. My pumpkins, I'm just waiting for them to finish ripening. Yes, guys, my pumpkins are already orange. And I'm, I'm hoping that they fully finish what they're doing before the squash bugs take them out. The pumpkins are so strong, though, that they're sending out new runners to replace the leaves they're losing. So I think we're going to make it through with those. I'm going to get five or six pumpkins this year. But the squash bugs are hammering them. I have several other varieties of squash out that the squash bugs are oh, not really that bad on, not really that great on. It's, you know, they're, 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 they're thriving, but they're, you can see the damages there. You find the yellow leaves. You find the little jerks. I haven't found a big collective of nymphs yet this year. I seem to have done pretty decent on controlling the eggs and stuff, but the adults are doing their damage, and if anybody's dealt with it, you know what it's like. The leaves start to turn yellow, and then they just wilt, and then they die. And at some point, you just cut them off and get rid of them. These holeless pumpkins, these Styrian holeless pumpkins, I can't say that the Japanese versions or anything else would stand up this way. Nothing touches them. They just sit there and grow. One plant's got three big old green striped holeless pumpkins on it, and I'm waiting for them to ripen, and nothing, even the deer haven't eaten them. And I, even though they're not a, uh, they're, uh, they're, uh, what do you call it? Sea peepo, I think, is their, their genus and species, uh, which is not generally known for insect resistance. I can tell you why I think it is. The leaves feel like sandpaper. They just don't seem like something anybody would want to mess with or eat. They're almost a little spiky and, and nothing's bothered them and they're producing well. Now, I'm a little concerned with the germination rate. And I'm going to give you the source that I used in spite of the fact that I got poor germination because it could be something I've done. It could be some way that, the, that that particular batch of seeds was mishandled. It could have been the, that I did it late in the year and it was hot out, but I tried to start them in a six-pack, a uh, little plastic six-pack, and I put a couple directly in the ground. I'm not even sure which. There was actually one that germinated in the six-pack, And I don't remember where I planted it, so I don't know if the one that's growing is that one or one that I direct sowed. I'm really not sure because I didn't pay attention that much this year. I just it, it, Polyculture has gone ape at Spirico Homestead this year. There's stuff everywhere, all intermingled. But if I've been reading and researching them, and apparently when you save the seeds from these things, if you're going to eat them, it doesn't matter. But if you're going to save them, even though there's no hole, there's a little thin membrane on them that dries, and when you eat it, you don't even know it's there, but that membrane needs to stay intact, and special care needs to be given to at least the seeds you're setting aside for your next crop, but they are freaking awesome so far. Again, there's a Japanese variety that looks in color and shape and size similar to, but not the same as the Austrian version. The Austrian version, get they're like a pretty decent-sized pumpkin, like a 10-pound-ish 
12-pound-ish pumpkin. The ones I've got on right now are easily close to 10 pounds each. And I'm not sure how much orange is supposed to come into them, uh, but I'm just going to leave them there until they you know, seem like they're ripe to me and we'll cut one and see how it works out. Now, I've been told that they're grown in Austria primarily for the seeds, and the seeds were an oil crop, which I can't see turning these things into oil because they taste so dadgone good. Um, even just dried, but roasted with a little seasoning, they should be phenomenal. And you don't have to deal with all the shells. But the, in general, people consider the flesh bland, and it's not really worth much of anything. And when they were farmed, they were farmed for the seeds, and the seeds were pulled out, and then the pumpkin halves were thrown to hogs. I think it's just because they had tons and tons of pumpkins. Because, as I've read about everybody who's used the flesh of the pumpkin and used it any other way you'd use pumpkin and squash, what have you, canning it, making pies with it, roasting it, whatever. They say it tastes like any other pumpkin out there. So awesome. Now, there is, again, those Japanese varieties. And I found another variety. I don't know if it's a hybrid or not. And it may be. And I ordered some seeds just to check them out and see what they'll do. And I obviously can't grow them this year. Maybe I grow one and see what happens. And I know it's not going to make it. But just, just to see how it handles the insect and disease resistance. It's called, I think it's called, let me make sure, but I think it's called Triple Treat. And I don't know if Burpee screwed something up with it, but it is Triple Treat. And I ordered some seeds to see what happens. And I'm going to share with you what Burpee says and what customer reviews say. And I'm kind of disappointed that Burpee hasn't, um, responded to these customers' reviews. You'd think they'd pay attention to their own website. Here's their description. Triple purpose, bright orange skin, round pumpkins. Nine inches across, weigh eight pounds. Good for Halloween carving. Thick, deep orange flesh is excellent for pies. Hullless seeds are delicious, raw or cooked. Ready for harvest 110 days after sowing. Garden hints for short summer area, start seeds in drawers, individual containers three or four weeks before planting time. Plant details requires full sun. Direct sow is the best method. Fruits average 8 pounds. Days to maturity 110 days. All good and well. I thought I'll order these and see what they do because I'm digging the whole holist thing. Here's some reviews. Disappointed with Burpee. This variety is known to have great seeds for roasting. We're so excited to grow our own. After sowing the seeds, watching the plant, I was confused as to why it wasn't vining. Turns out Burpee mixed up the seeds and we now have a zucchini plant. We don't eat zucchini, and by the time we noticed the problem, it was too late to plant any pumpkins. This is our first and last time buying from Burpee Seeds. Again, it kind of disturbs me that no one has responded from Burpee. Uh, strangest looking pumpkins I've seen. My wife was so looking forward to growing our first pumpkins, but when the plants did not vine, I got a little confused. They just did not look like pumpkin plants. After they bloomed, all of a sudden, there were dozens of nice large zucchinis, and we don't like zucchini. What a disappointment. We'll probably avoid burpee seeds in the future. So I saw that and thought, well, it's one person that's angry, but no, two different people. One is from Illinois and one is from North Carolina. Next interview, or next interview review. No, they do not look like pumpkins. They look like large zucchini. This is a person in Indiana. Not pumpkins. I don't know what is in the package, but it's not pumpkins. It looks like a zucchini on steroids. My lot was lot number six. The only encouragement I have here is that every one of these reviews was posted in July, and they were posted between July 8th and July 30th of this year. So it is possible that Burpee just screwed up a batch. I'll see what I get. I'll see what it looks like if I plant it, and I'll see if these people are crazy. But I don't think all one, two, three, four of them are crazy. 
Uh, the other option, and it could be that this one person created multiple accounts just because they were angry. Uh, and people do stuff like that. I'll let you know, but that was another variety of holeless pumpkins. Uh, the ones from Japan I'll talk about real quick. They're called khaki holeless pumpkin. Uh, holeless seeds for snacking. This is a description on high mowing seeds. Endearing Japanese pumpkin with large green and orange striped markings, large raised ribs, creates a beautiful display, but is most valued for holeless seeds which make a scrumptious snack. Khaki seeds are highly nutritious and yield a valuable oil. It is used to promote prostate health in men. Medium-sized fruits average 5 to 8 pounds. Plants have a semi-bush habitat and yield 2 to 3 fruits per plant. So that's the uh, the Japanese variety, which I haven't grown, so I can't comment on. I like the idea, but the uh, the Styrian that I got from a company called Terrar Seeds, LLC, home of Underwood Gardens, um, they have, again, not had any insect damage at all. So I'm pretty sold on that despite the poor germination rate. And I'm not going to blame them until I buy some more of their seeds and try another germination test under a little bit more controlled conditions. Um, but they grow, instead of, you know, let's say 6 to 10 pounds, uh, these, these pumpkins will grow 10 to 20 pounds. So that's more pumpkin and more seed and insect resistance. So for me, I think I found kind of my go-to with this unless something kind of goes uh, wacky with it. The next one I want to talk about, and last one for the day, is the asparagus pea, which is not really a pea and not really asparagus. It's like a winged pea is another way they call it. Uh, they grow all over in the tropics. They're like from the Mediterranean area, but now they're all over the Caribbean islands and things like that. And it's a cool plant. It, it's a legume, just like a pea or a bean, even though it's, it's just not really a pea or a bean. It's, it's kind of its own thing. And it's kind of a sprawling, viney-like, herbaceous plant. And it gets these gorgeous red flowers on it. And I guess they call it asparagus pea because the closest thing that it tastes like is a, is, is a pea. And it kind of has an asparagus look to it the way that it, the wings are on it. I, I really don't know that there's a better name for it. Um, but it's, it, again, it's a beautiful plant and it produces these great edible seed pods. And the flowers are actually edible too. And uh, it's just an awesome, unusual thing. And again, you're not going to go down to your local produce section at Kroger and go, "Hey, dude, where's the frol- you know, where's the uh, where's the asparagus pea?" And they're going to be like, "Oh, it's it's over here." And that's what I really like to grow. I like to grow things with intensive management in my backyard, my front yard that I just can't get anywhere else. Now, where they are like a pea is if you ever grown peas that you're just, you know you want to eat in the pod. Once they get too big, the pod gets all fibrous and stringy and not so good anymore. Well, these do the same thing, and there actually is kind of a pea, a legume seed in there that you can let grow to maturity, but generally they're, they're, they're grown mostly uh, to be eaten in the pod. And you want to basically about two days, three days after they form, it's time to pick them. And unless you're growing a lot of them, a lot of times you'll go out to the garden and you'll get you know, a little handful of them today and a little handful tomorrow and a little handful the next day. Ziploc bag in your, you know, your, uh, your produce section or your refrigerator until you get enough to do a big stir fry or something with them. And I think you'll really enjoy them. So there you go. Eight plants that hopefully either you haven't really heard of or thought about before or the things like corn maybe thinking about in a new different way today. Uh, hopefully, you know, you enjoyed learning about how to make parched corn and corn nuts both. And I, I think that, you know, again, even being a paleo guy, bringing little bits of things like corn and sorghum into the diet 
and doing so in moderation and having to expend the calories to produce them and having that self-limiting nature. And then also the, the, the very nature of corn and sorghum grain is it's highly storable. So one of the big things, and the, the holus pumpkin seeds as well, I'm looking to be able to produce things that I don't have to do a lot of energy inputs to store long term and that they will be just as good next year as they are this year so I can use them during the winter and all. And Because one of the things we end up with inevitably even with dehydrating and canning and everything else is we end up with so much production we can't use it all. And these other types of crops, many of the things that I've talked about today, have that ability to either be easily fermented and stored that way or to be stored as grains and what have you. So give it a shot. Check it out. Let me know. I know it's late in the year for most of this stuff, uh, but now is the time already to be planning on what you're going to be doing next year. And maybe very soon we'll start doing some stuff for fall gardening because as hot as it is, it's going to be here before you know it. With that, this has been Jack Spirico. Hopefully giving you a break from the uh, the gloom and doom today. And another uh, another episode helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.